I actually had such, a, um, such an amazing picture. Why don't we just close our eyes quick? Let's just stay in like such a sweet place of worship. And even as you'll, you'll hear, it's part of my message. But as we were worshiping, um, I felt God remind me of this picture that I saw I was preparing this message. And um, it's almost like I had this picture of all of us like a big block of granite unshaped, unformed, and um, kind of from an early age, from various pressures and standards, what we do is we pick up a chisel, and we start chiseling away, chiseling away, and we see all these examples around us of this is why I should be, oh, that's how I should be, this is what perfection looks like, this is good enough, and your arm's getting tired, and you keep going, you keep chiseling, you keep chiseling, and what Jesus does is he steps into the scene, and he says, drop your tools. And it's the most relieving thing because you have been working nonstop. And he says, drop your tools. And something in you scared because you're like, what am I going to look like? I'm just going to appear naked. Every, the, everything I've been building up to this moment, I'm letting go of. And I'm surrendering and I'm saying, okay, I trust that me letting go of that. He says, now you're acceptable in me. Put your trust in me. And and. and and even as I was praying into that picture, I felt that for some of us, we really don't want to let go tonight. And um, the act of worship, I would love it even afterwards if we have time, is that as you lift your hands to worship, you're saying, I'm dropping that tool. That's how I fight my battles. I'm dropping that tool, and that is how he perfects me. I don't keep working. So that was just, just, just praying into it. Um, I've literally been frothing all day to share. Could not stand still during worship. Um, so I mustn't talk too fast. I must keep myself cool. But I feel like this message is going to be very important for many of us. It's, it's honestly changed my life. It's changed my faith. I feel like I've seen, I don't know if you've, I hope you've had these experiences yourself, but you see something in Scripture that you could be reading one day and you, you come across something and you stop everything you're doing and you literally just stare at this truth. And for me, it happened in around November, I think end of last year. This is, I was saying this is going to sound like proper like clickbait on the internet when they build up to something, but this verse <laughs> is basically for me sums up the whole new covenant and this message of grace. And it's one of the ones I want to start off first, but we'll get to it. You can turn to Romans chapter 4. We're going to move slowly and we'll get there soon. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got your phone, I want us to read this carefully and walk through it and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to drop these truths um, into our minds. So Romans chapter 4, I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. From, yeah, chapter 4 verse 1. And we'll see how far we get. So, basically the intro here, Paul's written this letter to the church in Rome. And it's a mixture at the moment of Jews and Gentiles. So you'll see from chapter 1, he's, he's, he's trying to address both. He's trying to address the Jews and bring them back to the law. And, and actually speak directly to the law. And then he's trying to actually get them also to accept the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles don't know the law. They're, they're, they are the Greeks. And you, you had quite a mix-up in the church there, um, and he's really trying to address something specific here. So we get to chapter 4 here, and um, 
Let's read. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was just for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Can we go back one? He has something to boast about, but not before God. And then verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted, or some verse say, credited to him as righteousness. Believe. That's, hang on that word. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And this is verse 5. This is the one that floored me. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just let that blow your mind for a bit. I don't know if you've read this, if you've seen it, but I promise you, if you see this properly, something's going to shift inside of you. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And this is from one of the Psalms. And it says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin is beautiful. And then we can stop there for now. He goes on and he's expounding on Abraham. And even before we jump in there, as I was reading this, I was firstly amazed at God's wisdom that the very person writing this book is the most, I think he's literally the most qualified person in the whole of scripture to write this book. He is Saul that became Paul, one of the most devout Jews, persecuted the Christians, he, he even speaks later on in Corinthians, and he says, as for the law, I was blameless. I was, I was the top student. I was the top achiever. And I was just blown away that this is, this is I'm going to listen to this. If this was Paul, I mean, if this was a Gentile writing this, I don't know if I'd really, I'd really believe it. But Paul writes this, and it, it's, it's just incredible what the case that he's building here. What he does is he takes Abraham, who was basically the Jew's, poster boy, in a sense. He was, he was the ultimate example of righteousness and faith to which the promise was given. The promise of God was given to Abraham. And he speaks about that, about Abraham believing him. And we don't have to turn there. That's actually in Genesis chapter 15. You see this conversation between God. And I think at that point he was Abraham. I always got that mixed up. I thought it was a spelling mistake when I was younger. It was extremely con confusing. And Sarah was Sarai, yeah, and God changes their names. Um, but you see back there, I'll, I'll just read it quick, you don't have to turn there, is this is before God has even given, the law doesn't exist, you must keep that in mind, so there's no law. It says the law was given to expose sin. But at this point, there's no law. There's just Abraham chilling here with Sarah. And see what it says. It says, I'll just read this for you. Abraham's kind of complaining here. He says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will now be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So is the number of the stars. And what's the line here? It says, verse 6, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. We have to get this right here, what is happening. At this point, Abraham has no proof that God will even fulfill that promise. All he's believing is God's promise. I will give you a son. He's in no proof. He is old in age. His wife literally laughed at this fact. Said, are you kidding me? They were about a hundred years old, almost around there. But that kind of faith, even though it's in Genesis chapter 15 of the Bible, is the exact type of faith we re- God requires right now. As I was reading this, there's just a different promise that we're believing in. You've got to see that. There's no law introduced yet. It is a promise that God is saying, if I give you something, can you believe me at my word? You don't just believe in God. It says even the demons believe in God. But they don't believe what God says. They don't believe his promise of salvation. So when you respond, and you, when, when you respond to the gospel, you're not just saying, I'm a bad person. I believe in God. Um, I'll take a chance. No, you're saying, I believe in this promise that you can make me acceptable. Apart from nothing I can do. But the crazy thing is you've got no proof that that promise has even happened yet. Think about the marble statue. If you've been working on this your whole life, you can kind of look at it. And I was thinking of Michelangelo's um, statue of David. I remember we had a book at home when I was growing up. The most beautiful stuff that Michelangelo did. The Sistine Chapel and, and, and that statue that he did of David is one of the most detailed, beautiful statues I've ever, ever seen in my life. And it's almost like if I had to chip away my whole life, I would never get close <laughs> to, to that level of perfection. And it's like what God has done with us in faith is he calls each man, each man walking on the street or whatever it is, and he says, this is a thing of life and death. This is a thing of being acceptable or not acceptable. Not good or bad. It's acceptable. What is going to make you acceptable in my sight? And it's crazy faith. Because it's actually better, it's, it's easier to look at what I've done, my good works. I can kind of count them up, I can measure it, I know when I'm having a good week, I know when I'm having a bad week. But to completely release that and put my faith in, in Jesus, who I can't even see the end product yet, it says we have this hope that he will perfect us and he is perfecting us in Christ. That, that is powerful faith. I mean, the world will look at that and they will think we're daft. They, will, they, are, they are slaving away as we speak. Many religions, slaving away. And still, if you ask them, they would have no assurance that they're acceptable yet. And we have this assurance. It's, you need to get this. It will change. If you want to shout and say something, if you want to jump up, feel free. If, some, if something starts hitting home, make a noise because I've been burning Taking hold of the stuff. Um, before we even go further, there's something that's very important that, that you'll see in the whole of Romans is Paul uses the past tense almost all the time. All these chapters, three, four, five, he is speaking about, do you not know? This has happened. Do you not know that you have died to the law? You have died to sin. 
Do not know that you've been set free. Not you are going to be, maybe, it might happen. He's saying there is knowledge to be had here. But are you reckoning it to be true? So where do you think the devil comes in? He's called, I was speaking to teenagers on Friday night about this. And you've got the accuser, that's the devil. So what's his one job day and night? To accuse, which is a pretty lame job for us. So he's accusing you day and night. And if you feel shaky about what God has already done, you're going to be an easy target for the enemy. He's going to say, are you really righteous? You don't look that righteous. You're not feeling or acting very righteous, so then you're all of a sudden uncertain. But am I? So you need something that's a firm foundation that I could literally be having my worst day. I could have walked across the road and pushed a granny. And, and what am I still? What am I still? Righteous. You get that? Because then the devil comes for you and he's like, oh, this is hard. I came at the optimal time. It says even when Jesus was in the desert, the devil withdrew and he waited again for another optimal time, the best time. And that's what he does with you. He will wait. He'll catch you in the morning. He'll catch you in the night. And he'll come for your conscience. And that's where the war is, your conscience. What this, does, this truth does is it guards your conscience and your mind. So that when the devil comes, you say, no, my mind and my brain and my thoughts and my conscience have been sprinkled clean by the blood. And you can actually show him your works and say, like, this stuff doesn't even count anymore. And he will get upset because he wants to condemn you by your works. This is foundational truth right here. And this whole thing of reckoning, that's, that's a word I want to use. Reckon or consider it to be true. So like a, a silly example would be um, if you used to be a pig. This is actually good in Jewish terms. Because pigs in Jewish culture was, yeah, was seen as like when the prodigal son went to the pigs, it was seen as the lowest place he could really go. And if, imagine you were a pig before you come to God. You're a pig. You're snuffling around. You're just picking it up. You've got these short little piggy legs. And then, what does God do with you? He turns you into an eagle, which is amazing. But you know what can happen if you don't reckon certain things to be true? You're going to be in an eagle's body, snuffling around like a pig. Because all you've ever known is what it's like to be a pig. Now, I'm just fighting sin, brother. I'm just travailing. I'm just, I'm, I think I'm doing well this week. No, you're still in your flesh. That's what you're doing. When he gives you wings and he says, no, you're in Christ. You are a new creation. You can fly. But he wants to keep you there in the flesh. He wants to keep taking you back to the old. Paul said, put off the old, put on the new. Reckon it to be true. Amen. So there's a, what, what you see, what I'm saying here is there's a, I'm setting a, a, a slow foundation here, but we need it, is there is an objective truth in Scripture. No matter, I don't care how you feel. You might be sitting and saying, yeah, I put my faith in Jesus a few years ago, but I don't feel righteous at all. I still struggle with sin. I still feel miff a lot of the time. I feel like I'm not worthy. Your emotions don't matter. They don't change truth. There is an objective truth that you need to say, my reality, my emotions come under that thing. Because if it's the other way around, you're going to be tossed back and forth daily, like a wave of the sea. You're going to have a nice quiet time on a Monday morning, 
go about your day thinking you're on top of the world, and then the devil's just going to come for your conscience again. Because you haven't applied this truth to your very your mind. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I sat the whole day literally staring at some of these scriptures. I didn't want to go anywhere. Hebrews, um, Romans, Galatians. It's like I was seeing something I've never seen, and I've been in church my whole life. So if you believe you're still a sinner, what are you going to do? If you believe that's your nature, what are you going to keep sinning? So that's another lie of the enemy. The Bible, Romans says, by no means. The people are shouting out. They're saying, this is scandalous. What are you saying? What, we can just keep on sinning? He says, by no means. Do you not know? And God's saying that tonight with this message. He's saying, do you not know? You're not going to respond in the front and say, I want a dead to sin experience. That's actually like pouring scorn on the cross. You're saying, that wasn't enough. I need another experience. You need to reckon this to be true and actually, quite frankly, repent. I found as I was reading a lot of this stuff, I had to repent of such false mindsets of like that I somehow was adding something to this right, this right standing. Um, so let's look at Abraham quick. So what was it about Abraham's faith that qualified him? It says it was belief. What did he believe? God's promise. Promise. He had no other guarantees. I would actually demand quite a lot more than that, but it was literally just a promise. And he held on to that promise. Circumcision hadn't even been introduced yet. Um, and a basic belief of the Jews was you earn favor with God. So when, when um, Paul is writing this letter, what's crazy is Paul was deep in Jewish culture. So for him to, uh, many of us think when we become a Christian, we lose friends. I would imagine Paul, Paul lost literally every friend he had. And he came to the Christians and they were scared to even accept him. They were like, whoa, <laughs> this is the same guy that persecuted and killed us. And God just transformed this man. And he's preaching to his very people and saying, no, you can't earn favor with God. It's a beautiful thing. So in, 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 I'll, I'll just touch on this briefly. Um, you see that there were two sons that were born. So Sarah at that point, in the flesh, wants to perfect what was promised. She says, I'm not going to wait. She grabs the servant girl, Hagar. And, and I felt so weird reading this. Abraham's, Abraham's a bit like Adam in the garden, like a bit slup. Like she's just like, here's the servant girl, go sleep with her. And everyone's like, okay. And, and he bears a son. And Hagar falls pregnant. And it says that Hagar then felt such contentment towards Sarah and was upset about this. And, and God speaks about that being the son of the flesh, of slavery, so there's two sons, and then Isaac was the son born of the promise. And we are of Isaac. We are of Abraham. We are of that seed of the spirit, not of slavery. So we don't perfect in the flesh what God promised in the spirit. Can we turn to Galatians? Galatians is exponentially powerful. I don't even know if that's a, the right adjective, but I want to use it. It's exponentially powerful. Go to Galatians 4. <laughs> Because it speaks about a lot of this stuff. Are you guys following me? 
If you want to stand up and shout, what shall we say then? Or if you've got like a massive cry, then do it. Okay. Because this, I believe that if, 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 we, if we preach the gospel and people don't accuse us of being too extravagant or it being too scandalous, then we're not preaching it properly. If it just sounds safe and it just sounds like, okay, I could do that, then we're not preaching the right message. It needs to be people, no, what shall we say? It's like uh, Terry Virgo is one of the guys I love. I, I grew up in, you had NCMI, which Josh Jen came out of, and Andrew, and I grew up in New Frontiers, which was more of a British movement. Terry Virgo is a great hero of the faith that started it, and, and he preached some messages in the 1980s, my dad, my dad said, on grace, and it transformed a whole movement. He had pastor's wives coming to him in tears saying, I've never heard this in my whole life. Carrying the yoke of being good enough, of chiseling away, of leading the flock. And they heard grace and it literally, churches like this were just born. And something with birth in the spirit. And he said, a picture I love, he said, I've never painted, I actually have painted, but I was horrible. I don't know who's a good painter, water painter. Is, um, is it called water painting? I don't know. Whatever. Water brush. Is... <laughs> so if you're painting, let's say, let's say you're at school and you're doing a painting of the sky and all these other things behind it. What you would do is you would first paint the base. So you'd paint a blue background. But what you can do if you're too hasty, before that thing's dried, is you're trying to paint the tree trying to paint the house all on top of it, and the whole thing just looks like a big smudge. And what he says there is some, a truth like this is that blue background. He says, you've got to let that thing dry, because too quickly we'll be like, but, but this, oh, I've got to put this on, oh, what about that? And the whole thing gets muddy, and you don't even know really where you stand. You've mixed so much grace and law together that you're not sure what you're under, if you're acceptable. So what we need to do is, I would encourage you, I'll even post pictures of these notes and just look at these verses and let the paint dry. Do not move on from it. Because what you're doing is you're, this isn't all of it, but this is still true. So let this thing dry inside of you and say, I'm going to camp out here until this is like literally part of my DNA. I'm going to start, I'm going to keep looking at this this week. I'm not done with it. I don't think I'll ever be done with it. Because in your flesh, you want to perfect what was started in the Spirit. It's easier. It's more control. Amen. So then I've got, another, I've got about a few series of questions. I'm not even timing myself. So then the next question is, why then was the law introduced to Moses? We haven't even spoken about the law. The law was 430 years later than that moment. So why was the law introduced? These are very important questions. So G- Jesus, we'll see in the Gospels, says some pretty extravagant things about the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law by no means. He says, not one word, not one letter of this will pass away. But he says, I came to fulfill the law. So there's no battle between the two. You don't say, oh, we're done with law. There's no, no, the law exists. The law is holy. The law is blessed by God. But it's our relationship to the law we need to know. Where do I stand right now in relationship to the law of God? Which was, back then it was 613 commandments. 
that you can imagine, if you even thought you could keep that, you don't even have to say, God, search my heart. Like, that's self-righteousness. You can't keep that. It says the purpose, we'll look at Galatians now. What was the purpose the law was introduced? To? To point us to Jesus. To, it's, it's literally there to crush you under the weight of it so that it would expose sin. So that in steps the Savior. It's a beautiful plan. I was marveling at this today. It's exponentially marvelous. It's, it's amazing. It's unreal. So the law, stick with me here, the law is made up of, I would just say, it was called the Mosaic law, because it was given to Moses, or the Levitical law. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretending like I'm Jewish here, but I just researched some of these things. So, so the first part is the ceremonial laws. And that was such a messy thing, or the sacrificial system. So the law wasn't just Ten Commandments like we've built our constitutions and all these things. It wasn't just do this, don't do that. It was a whole way of being clean before God and atonement for sins. So the, the, I've often thought of this. I heard it preached when I was younger. And I was like, if you were to walk, I wish I could actually see a video. Well, I do actually wish I could see a video of this. It's like watching a botfly video. You regret it afterwards, but no one's watched. Don't watch a botfly video. Um is I would have loved to see the temple, people bringing their sacrifices, weighed down by their guilt. And they're coming there, and you can imagine, as part of this, there were priests of the tribe of Levi that were the high priests. They were there to stand on behalf of the people with God. And they would go into the holy place, they would, they would work at the temple and do the sacrifices. So if I had to come there with my sacrifice, let's say, heartbreaking actually, because I love animals, but like a little lamb, like, there's a cost involved here. Like, I wouldn't want to kill that lamb, but I understand that it says for, for, for sin to be forgiven, blood must be shed. It's a principle you see all through Scripture. And when I'm standing there, what, where do you think my focus and my eyes are going to be? On the lamb or myself? Where's my eyes going to be? On the lamb. I'm not looking at myself. I'm looking at, is the lamb pleasing enough? Is the lamb pleasing enough? I'm like, I checked it myself. Will it be acceptable? Will it atone for me? We'll get to this later, but what do we do when we look at the lamb of God? Sometimes we put our eyes on ourselves, but no, our eyes should not be on ourselves. They should be on the lamb. Was he acceptable enough? Was he, did he really accept and pay the wrath of God on my behalf? Yes, he did. And another amazing illustration is in um, is is the after the law was given, Israel then gets as a nation gets enslaved by Egypt. And I watched Prince of Egypt, still amazing, um, this this holiday. And and you see the Israel the Israelites come out of slavery. They almost go through a baptism. There's all these symbols. Baptism, their slave masters are killed under the water, they come alive, and they still moan a lot after that. But what happens there when they were in Egypt, something there's there's a profound picture of salvation already. You see the, the different plagues that come, and then you watch the last one 
which God's almost saying like, God forbid this, but I, I, I have no choice. And he says all the firstborn of every family will die except those that have the blood of the lamb, a perfect lamb above their doorpost. Can you imagine sitting inside that house, hearing the cries, and I'm peeking through my door and I'm looking at that blood, and I'm like, is it, has it faded? Is it still there? Did we use the right animal? Was it a lamb? I think it was a lamb. And I'm sitting inside with my family. I'm not looking at myself. I know this has got nothing to do with me. This has got to do with the lamb. And that's what we do when we worship, when we think of God. We're not looking at myself. That's, that's absurd. I came in not looking at myself. How can I now still look at myself? I'm looking at the lamb. And the lamb's acceptable. The lamb's beautiful. For all time, it says. It says in Hebrews that after giving and offering a single sacrifice, he satisfied and paid for sin for all time and sat down. That word, I highlighted it so much. It went through to the maps. Sat down after that and rested because he said it is finished. It says in the old system, the priests would never be able to sit. Day in and day out, they were giving sacrifices for the people. You see, it's a very different system here. It's a very different covenant. Someone was saying, I'm not even really following my notes, but it's, I hope it's making sense. Um, someone was saying that it's so unfair that because of Adam, we all have sin, and it is very unfair. So when you're explaining the gospel to someone, you're not saying when you were six years old and you stole a cookie, you became a sinner. No, the bad news is when you were born, you became a sinner. It's hectic. If you look at a toddler... They're utterly sinful. They are. I love Becky, but she's got sin already. And it's, it's crazy that you've got to teach them how to, you, you implement laws to try to curb their behavior. So, so what the law does then, the minute you tell Becky, do not covet. I don't know if she can covet yet, but do not steal. What does she want to do? She wants to steal that cookie. So it actually exposes the sin. That's what the law does. So we spoke about the ceremonial law. Then there was the moral law, which you see in, in, in like the Ten Commandments and all those 613 do's and don'ts. It says that, thank God, go read Leviticus. It's got a bad rep in the Bible, but it actually is quite interesting. It says like you sacrifice the... You take the fat of the loins and then the fat of the kidneys and then the fat of the upper arm and you combine it with the kidneys and then you're like, whoa, just to have some sort of sacrifice that's pleasing enough. And it actually says that because Jesus lived a perfect life, sinless, he satisfied the moral law of God. So, so miraculously, when I put my faith in him, I get joined to Christ. I don't just join a crowd of people following him around Galilee like a follower. I'm, I'm literally put into Christ. You tell me it's unfair that I got put in Adam. I'd say this corrects that unfairness now. It says, if death reigned through the one man's sin, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ? How's that for wisdom from God? He corrects the one wrong by now saying, just in that unfairness, I'm going to hold this up to the world. And he says, the wisdom of God is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. He says he took those, those things that are foolish to shame the wise. So what he's doing with this plan of salvation is he is shaming those who are trying to be good enough in themselves. The Pharisees hated him. They hated him because he would sit with prostitutes and say their entry into the kingdom and their reward is just the same as yours because there's a level playing field. So there's no Jew, no Gentile. All are equal in Christ. It was offensive. So there's that, that, there's that amazing verse I said where it says, um, do we have Hebrews 10? Hebrews 10 verse 18, I think it is. Uh, well, there's still a powerful verse. Yeah, this is it. Um, it says, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And there's another part there, I don't know where it is, where it just says that after offering all of this, he sat down. And, and our job as Christians is predominantly to do what, do you think? It's a four-letter word, and you're going to do it tonight after this meeting, at around 10, 11, hopefully. It's not sleep. That's not a four-letter word. You're going to rest. That's our job. But everything in my flesh does not want to rest. It wants to work. It, it feels uncertain. It, he says, no, rest in what has happened, and from that place you will bear fruit. You can't bear fruit by yourself. You rest, you plug yourself into the soil and into Christ. And in doing so, he says, you satisfy the law. It's mind-boggling. Can I get an amen? Does it seem ridiculous? He says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he says, just walk in the spirit. It's bonkers. <laughs> Even Pilate, you, you see in the, in the movie in, in, in Passion of the Christ, I felt quite a lot of sympathy for Pilate in the, in the movie. I, I don't know if they portrayed him maybe nicer than he was, but he stands there with Jesus in front of these people, and he's conflicted. And he says, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in him. He is blameless. And they could have found something if there was something. And the Pharisees and the people still say, crucify him. But he was blameless. I promise you, if you see this stuff correctly, you are never going to struggle again to worship or find the motivation. Or, oh God, I need more gratitude. One, I, I started seeing this stuff when I was younger, and it's sinking in now. But I can promise you, I've never struggled to worship. I would often chat to some of our youth guys and they would be like, James, help me. Like, what should I think about when I'm worshiping? What, what can help me? And I would say, you need a revelation of what he's done for you. Because you're sitting here and like we sang earlier, freely it's been given, freely I receive. It said in Romans 4, if you had to work for it, wouldn't it be a gift? It's like if I get my first job, and I've worked so hard for that salary, and I go into the office, and there's a cake there, there's candles, everyone's like, woo! And they give me like this gift, and it's actually my salary. I'm like, are you guys nuts? Like, I slaved away for that thing, I worked. True? He says, but no, it's a free gift of God, so that none can boast. 
The, the, it's, it's really for the poor in spirit. It knocks all pride out of you. It knocks all boasting out of you. Levels the playing field. And there's an incredible verse in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. I saw this the other day. So what, what Moses has done here is he's, he's introduced the law to Israel, the Ten Commandments and the law. And then at the end of the chapter, he says something profound. As he says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. That was the old covenant. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to obey all of these. And they couldn't. So it shows you the contrast of this new covenant that you come into. And it's like it says at just the right time when we were still powerless and weak. God did what we weakened in the flesh could never achieve. He sent his only son. And now it's almost like, it's almost like Noah's ark. The, the Bible has a lot of these types of Christ. It's like Moses was a type of Christ. He redeemed the people. The ark was almost a type of Christ. It saved the people from the wrath of God by being in the ark. And it's almost like Jesus now, it says in Scripture that he's leading this train of captives in his train with him. And it's like we get put into, into Christ and we're with him for eternity. But can you receive it? Do you reckon it to be true? Or are you going to keep chiseling away saying, I can't. It's, it's, it's too hard. It's, it's too good to be true. I'm getting fidgety right now. You can rest in that place. And then later we can speak all about bearing fruit. Because I promise you, if, if I get married in the next year and someone comes to me and someone comes to me and they say, let's say Daryl comes to me as an older brother and he says, listen James, I want to sit you down. We're sitting at Coca Ula where we always go for breakfast getting hummus, eggs and toast. And, uh, and Daryl says to me, listen James, I've got a few things to say to you, buddy. Now that you're married, you need to spend at least 45 minutes a day with your wife. I'm like, whoa, okay. What do you think I was going to do? You need to write her cards and write nice things for her and tell her how much you love her. And you need to think of her when you're at the shops, maybe buy her a gift. You need to consider her. You need to serve her. I would be like, yeah, that's all true. But the mere fact that I love her I'm not pointing at anyone in particular. The mere fact that I love her <laughs> means that you don't have to instruct me and put rules on me. It is a love relationship. I was telling the youth this Friday, I went to game the one day and I was looking for hot water bottles. I felt like a dweeb walking around there. And I found a rainbow-colored hot water bottle that I thought this would be perfect. I think it's from like the kiddie section. And I was standing there all chuffed with myself. And it was raining that day and I ran through the rain and then dropped my hot water bottle, picked it back up. And then drove to said person's house and presented the water bottle. And I'm like, yes, James, like you've never done this stuff in your life. But no one had to instruct me to do these things. It's because I love I feel loved and I'm loved. Do you get that? So what should be your supreme goal in your relationship with God? 
to receive His love. If you're just doing stuff for Him, it's not going to last. If someone gets saved, we hear this sometimes, they get saved, listen buddy, I'm so amped for you, like such a great decision, let me tell you a few things. You need to read your Bible now. Okay, I need to read my Bible. You need to have a quiet time, uh, what time of day, maybe in the morning. These are all good things, but look what we're doing. You mustn't look um, or watch those movies anymore. You mustn't look at a girl with lust. That's a law. You mustn't do that one. And the guy's like, oh, that's kind of hard, but Lord, Lord help me. Um, you must go to church on a Sunday. You must go to these meetings and you must worship and you must install Jesus so you can listen to Jesus culture and Bethel. And you give all these rules, but what do you think that guy's thinking after that? What if I don't do these things? Am I still accepted? So what you do is people can be born unhealthy. They need to be born in a place where you say, rest. Literally look at this stuff for your first year straight. And then we'll talk about behavior modification and fruit. Because if I just put that on someone, I saw it with young people leading, leading youth. Lasts a few months and then it's gone. They have no clue why they were doing that and not doing that in the first place. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Why would you take your body and, and join yourself with a prostitute? It's like uniting Christ now with a prostitute. That's a different discussion to the law. He says, do you not know you were bought at a price? So honor God with your bodies. It's a different covenant here. It is a different system. It's one of relationship, one of love. Why do I lay my life down for others? Because I've seen how he has laid his life down for me. It's not just a law written in the Bible for me. Amen. Is this making sense, guys? I'll, I haven't even seen my time, but I'll... Okay, so here's, here's the last, one of the last questions I want to address. What is our relationship now? And when I say now, I say for those that are now in Christ. If you're sitting here and you have said, I admitted I was not acceptable enough myself, and my sin separated me from God, and I put my faith in Christ that He makes me righteous, you're now in Him. So what is your relationship now to the law? What would you say? Are you under the law or are you under grace? Can you say it confidently? What are you under? You're under grace. But you need to let that pervade through your thoughts. Because in word it might sound obvious. Because the law, if, if I am married to Jesus now and I'm joined with him, I don't go back to my old husband, the law. It says the law, Paul says the law was like a husband. First of all, he's a taskmaster. Imagine you're married, all the women, you're married to a man who is just like a drill sergeant. No love, just tells you what to do, overbearing, does not lift a finger to help you. And the other sucky thing is he can't even produce life. He's impotent. He can't conceive life. You're joined to him for eternity. He'll never pass away. That's depressing. Amen. All the ladies, can I get a yeah? Okay, that's good. 
that if you've been joined to Christ, it says that he is perfect and faultless, and it says that he's like a husband. I don't know what just ran. Oh, Reuben. <laughs> it says that you've now been joined to Christ, so you don't. Do you go back to your old husband to perfect what God has now birthed in the Spirit? What did he say to the Galatians? Oh, you foolish Galatians, why do you go? I started you in the Spirit, why go back to the flesh? The flesh is of no use at all, he says. He's an impotent husband, and it says we've died to the law. If you've died to it, it's a done deal. I could do another preacher, it says you've died to sin. That's the next building block you actually need. But it says, and, and this is a very important point, I'll, I'll kind of end off here. Um, and l- listen to this, guys, just as we close off. It says that if you are sitting here, because even being in Christ, you can let your mind still be under the law. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you haven't reckoned something to have happened yet or to be true. You are still, you're a pig now in an eagle's body living like a pig. You've changed. It's happened. You've got an identity shift, but you're not appropriating this. To reckon something means you put it in the right column. Is it a credit? Is it a debit? You put it in its right place. So God might be saying tonight, I want you to move that thing back to where it belongs. Because it says all who are under the law are under a curse. It's a curse. It is like a, it's a, it's like a, a cold front depressive system over you that you, will, you won't even know how God thinks about you. And I pray tonight that God would, would reveal that and just set people free. That there's life in the Spirit. And it says that, Paul, Paul says that if you are still under the law, what is sin going to do to you? Is sin thrives on there being a do and a don't. Because it says it springs to life. It says if there's no law, in a sense, he says there's no opportunity for sin anymore. But he says the minute the commandment came, sin springs to life. So you need to get that tonight, that by you saying, Jesus, I'm coming under you. I've heard truth tonight, and I want to accept that truth. I want to, I want to reckon it to be true. You're actually disarming the enemy. You're disarming him. So in conclusion, I want to read one verse. Why don't we stand? Romans 8. Why don't you stand there and close your eyes? Listen to, listen to what it says here. But, and as I read this, reckon this to be true for yourself. Say, I'm, I'm putting off the old tonight. I'm getting rid of old mindsets and I'm putting on the new. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Amen.
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according not to the flesh but according to the spirit that's our response as we walk out of here i'm walking according to the spirit i'm making no provision for the flesh in my life 